In a modern data platform, distributed streaming systems are used to read data coming off of an application in real time. There are a wide variety of streaming systems, including Kafka Streams, Apache Samza, Apache Flink, Spark Streaming, and more. When Eric Anderson joined the show back in 2016, he was working at Google on Google Cloud Dataflow, which is a managed service for handling streaming data. Today, Eric works as an investor at Scale Venture Partners. In his current job, he analyzes companies built around data infrastructure, developer tooling, and other enterprise engineering domains. Eric also hosts the podcast Contributor, which explores open source maintainers and the stories of their projects. Eric's podcast has featured the creators of projects such as Envoy, Aluxio, and Chef. In today's episode, Eric returns to discuss data infrastructure, investing, and the evolving world of open source. Eric Anderson, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yes, you were on a while ago. That was back in 2016 when you were at Google Cloud. We talked about Google Cloud Dataflow. And... You were working on the Google Cloud team for a while, for about four years. You were working on the data engineering products. How has the data engineering ecosystem changed since those days? Hmm. I, I suppose when I was just starting, Hadoop was still a big deal. There was the transition to Spark, where everyone was kind of rebranding the ecosystem Spark, but it was more or less the same ecosystem. And... And then the unexpected rise of Data Warehouse was a big deal, where I think it took all the vacuum out of the room. I think that basically we thought we'd had to build these complex systems in order to store massive amounts of data. And then we had these programming languages and processing systems to get out of them, get data out of them. And with BigQuery, Redshift, and Snowflake, I think a lot of people are like, oh, we can just throw it in the database just like before and query it with SQL. And that gets us 90% of what we wanted. Uh, so I think the rise of Data Warehouse it's been a big deal. Um, the rise of Python. So when I started, the whole data engineering world revolved around the JVM. And Hadoop, then Spark, then Kafka. These were all big Java monoliths. And meanwhile, data science was kind of doing its own thing over in NumPy, SciPy land. And that's evolved into machine learning. And that's become the primary use case for, for data engineering. So that now Dask and other kind of Python projects are our center stage, which I find kind of exciting to have a kind of a programming language driving new tech shift. And on the data warehousing side, you have Spark, the Spark people, the Databricks people who have built Delta, which I think combines Data Lake with their processing system and then you have the Kafka people who have stream processing systems, KSQL, built on top of Kafka. And then you have the Snowflake system, which is, as I understand, unified data lake and data warehouse. You have all these different paradigms of how people do data warehousing. Is there a consensus for what is desired the most out of a data warehousing system? Those systems you all, you mentioned, started very differently, and then they kind of converged to this SQL queries on a big bunch of data to some degree. So I think what happens is you have really talented engineering teams with very specific requirements to accomplish, whether that's uh, ingest a stream of data or to, to do reoccurring processing on a bunch of data. They build these amazing systems, highly available, very fast and efficient and then you have a, the whole data science community just wants to query data, and they, they, they want to then consume these highly available, really efficient systems. And so those systems evolve from being very complex to operate and rigorous in the, the code that you write to use them to being uh, eventually you get a SQL layer on top and you get a data layer on bottom and it, it starts to look all, they all kind of start looking like a data warehouse because that's how a bunch of the enterprise wants to consume things. So, so I find that an interesting, so there's a semblance of convergence in that the enterprise and data science community keeps pulling us towards 
a SQL database for data science, for data engineering and data science. Are there particular gaps in the data infrastructure tooling that you see? Certainly. So there's still uh, operational gaps. I'm impressed by, uh, like, like when I look at opportunities for investment, for example, now um, I, I kind of look at this lens of like where are things missing in data engineering community. Operationalized, uh, Kafka is super popular. Operationalizing a Kafka cluster is is a momentous feat. Um, <laughs> people pay companies, you know, tens of millions of dollars to, to keep Kafka up and running for them. So I think there's an opportunity in giving the enterprise or just the world a kind of highly efficient and easy to operate stream processing service. There's maybe one. Another is I feel like orchestration, if you want to call it that, is still troublesome. You know, there's like Airflow, I think, was a very popular tool, still is. Yeah. But I feel like there, there's still a little dissatisfaction in the world of like, so I use one system to kind of describe my jobs, another system to kind of tell it when to start and stop. And there's some dissonance between that, par- the, that idea mm-hmm. that like I use one system to tell another what to do. And, you know, like retries get tricky, which is kind of the fundamental thing you're trying to solve for. And so I think uh, kind of a, an all-in-one orchestration and processing tool could be interesting. And then maybe the third area would be the world of data science still feels separated from data engineering. Uh, we've been talking about this a while, like putting models into production is harder than it should be. That, that feels like a, a still a ripe area for opportunity. So those are all great points. The productionizing of a Kafka-like system why doesn't Kinesis or Google Cloud PubSub or Confluence Kafka offerings, why don't those do the trick? Put differently, why, why, why are people running Kafka open source if it's so hard, given these cloud provider offerings? There's still some, some concerns people have with running. These are super important systems for people. Turning them onto a cloud provider is a concern. I think pricing ends up being a concern. Mm-hmm. I know in our experience that as soon as you throw a lot of volume at one of these, from like when I was at Google days, as soon as a customer puts a lot of volume into this, they start coming back and asking about pricing. And, <laughs> oh. and So it adds up. It adds up, yeah. And, and maybe that's where I think efficiency is you know, one, of these, one of the hallmarks of this opportunity. If you, can, if you can continue to press the performance needle, there's an opportunity, I think, to, to steal market share. Because there's a lot of people, like I said, paying a lot of money either to Confluent to keep it up or to, or to the cloud providers for like a per message basis at volume. And the airflow point, the, the point about orchestration all in one kind of um, uh, scheduling or I guess doing, you know, I think the, the airflow, the thing that airflow solved was you have a series of things that you might need to do to get a end-to-end machine learning or data engineering workflow where like maybe stage one, you do some kind of ETL from uh, a data lake into a data warehouse. Stage two, you do some you do some work in that data warehouse. Maybe you extract some clickstream analytics. And then stage three, you queue up a uh, machine learning job in TensorFlow. And so if you wanted to wire those three operations together, Airflow accomplishes those series of steps. But there's some pain points in the integration process along those series of steps? Is that what you're saying with the, the airflow yeah. issue? Yeah. So uh, we have these awesome, powerful engines, Spark, what have you, that do processing at scale efficiently. And so everyone wants to use those. But they, they, they weren't designed to handle these kind of nuancy little scenarios like, hey, I want to get the answer to this and go shove it over here and do this other thing. And so we say, go find an orchestrator, Airflow. But then Airflow, mostly what these former systems were really good at was was retries, was like ensuring that the job got done or it didn't get done, item potency basically. That like, if you're gonna, cause that, that's the problem with a distributed system is that you're gonna run a task, some of it's gonna complete, some of it's not gonna complete, we're gonna retry the parts that don't complete and so that when the job is done, it's done, regardless of like node failure or other concerns. And so, you know, orchestrators aren't gonna worry about that. That's a very tricky thing for them to do. They're gonna leave that to the other systems and so the assumption that Airflow has to rely on is that everything it executes is 
is idempotent. It's retriable, and it won't finish unless it succeeds. And and maintaining that guarantee across a series of steps is kind of annoying as a developer. You're like, well, I just want that the result of this thing to go into this database and then do this other step. And if that other step doesn't work, I want to go back to the step two steps ago and create a new value so that the that that step then works. So that then I guess you know because these three steps have side effects and are not idempotent, I need to make them just kind of one airflow step. So then, like, well, now I'm not really using Airflow much because my multi-step task is really just one Airflow task. So now I'm back into Spark and I'm doing complex, you know, kind of MapReduce-like code in order to accomplish my orchestration job. So uh, yeah, I think a system that is can kind of think both ways, and may, maybe there's opportunities with Dask now becoming as popular, you know, emerging in popularity to. What is that, Dask? Dask, yeah. What is that? Dask is a big data processing service like Spark, but it's Python-centric. So, so you have PySpark, which is like a Python API on Spark. You know, I want to attribute to the Anaconda team and the, you know, which I want to say are behind NumPy and others, developed this open source project called Dask, D-A-S-K, which is a paralyzable job execution you know, service, but it's all Python from the ground up, I believe. Um, if not just like a heavy, you know, a mostly Python API, perhaps there's some more efficient stuff underneath. But it's, yeah, it's becoming more popular. And I think it's becoming more popular because it's it's not Java and it's not tied to all the tooling that was kind of uh. held up the Hadoop Spark world. But if you're using PySpark and you're just interacting with the Python APIs... Why is any of that exposed to you? Why is any of the Java ecosystem actually exposed to you? Isn't it all abstracted away from you? It is. I think from like as a job developer, I think uh, PySpark is it's mostly Python. I mean, I, I don't know if like in debugging, if you ever end up with like low level errors that mm. you're like, oh, you know, what does this actually mean? Right. JVM um, stack trace. Yeah, yeah oh, that, no. that may happen in PySpark land. Maybe not. But I think certainly as the like the DevOps team that's managing the Spark cluster, they're ah. they're still managing, you know, a Java monolith. And if you're a data science team who wants to execute parallelizable jobs, you can either hire someone to manage Spark for you and execute your PySpark, or you can just run Dask yourself. Because you may feel more comfortable managing a a Python-centric system. You spent a little time working at AWS before going to Google Cloud. Yeah. How does the Google Cloud culture compare to AWS? Oh, I could talk for a while about this. Please do. <laughs> I have like a whole lot of respect for both cultures, and they they excel at different things, and which is why they're both you know trillion-dollar companies doing amazing things for us. One notable difference is that there's a ton of autonomy at AWS. Like they have separate teams that are all kind of competing on their own to to accomplish whatever they're doing, which can be a kind of a complicated environment to work in where you're like, hey, they're doing kind of what we're doing. We should go talk to them. And then you, but you might be like, no, let's not. Let's just beat them. You know, let's let's out execute. Let's just deliver on our promise. They have their own kind of charter. And I think you see that in how the product portfolio just proliferates. I mean, there's just products that are kind of like other products. Nothing gets retired. It's just more and more. This is a world of like super capable, highly autonomous teams just charging at the world and shipping things. On the other hand, Google has always been like a consensus-driven place. If you see another team shipping something similar to it, you go talk to them. And you kind of have like... Uh, you know, kumbaya moment where you're, you talk about what are you trying to accomplish? What are we trying to accomplish? Are there ways we can work together? And then you kind of share that up the, up the, the chain of command. And, and there's several kind of offsite meetings where people come together and agree on things, which offers, you know, addresses the former concern. You know, maybe it's a pleasant place to work because you feel like we're all working together. But things don't quite ship as quickly or as easily. I mean, if you want to ship something, you have to not only decide what customers want, but you have to decide what the other teams are trying to do and coordinate in complementary ways and make sure everyone's on board with all this, not only from like a cross-organizational perspective, but 
uh, I think engineers are more empowered at Google. So you have to get everybody on your engineering team on board. I think shipping at Google is, and maybe this is a product manager's point of view, but it's a whole bunch of consensus building. And I think that's, like I said, it, it excels in shipping. You look at the GCP product portfolio, there aren't as many products, but I think there, there's a lot of harmony. There's a lot of thought. And eventually you arrive at a really awesome product, you arrive at a little slower. And I think people fault Google at not moving quick enough relative to AWS. That's probably the biggest. It's more opinionated, right? Google yeah. Cloud is more opinionated. It is more opinionated, yes. Is that at all... The cloud that Google is building, is it asymptoting towards a Google infrastructure for everyone type of thing? Or does Google sort of acknowledge that not everyone is Google? Not everyone will want Google infrastructure. I'm not sure how to help. Not everyone will want Google infrastructure for everyone. Like, does, does the market want the same things that the internal Google engineers want? No, and I not certainly not the exact same, and and that's been so. What was the mission to to ship Google for everyone uh, initially? Yeah, I think so. I think the team took the kind of Bezos mentality of innovating on behalf of the user, like serve them what they really want, not necessarily what they're asking for. The AWS team. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm actually talking about Google. Um, oh, okay. But they may have taken, you know, originally that they took that a little too far. Like they, they served the world to pass. That was kind of the app engine. Right. Like Azure was kind of the, what we thought right. the world needed. And it turns out that the, the market for infrastructure and, and, and just uh, servers was so much bigger. And, and the world was so much more ready for it. Right. Anyway, so that, that, was, that was just one, kind of one well-documented point in history. I shouldn't spend time on that. But I think Google continued to ship next gen products in a world that just wanted like awesome current <laughs> gen product. yeah and i think with you know leadership changes trial and error increasingly google's like now doing interesting things where they're like can we can we adjust our inter- like take what we know about managing awesome opinionated stuff in a certain way and then can we also take what we know about what people want today can we deliver them something that's like awesome current gen tech I feel like Kubernetes was along that lines. Like we, we could have, you know, PubSub, for example, f- I, th- I think is mostly just an API on Google's internal PubSub. But we didn't do that with Kubernetes. Kubernetes is is a new ground up project inspired by Borg, but it's not. It's not. We didn't ship Borg. It's just. It's. It's a new thing. And I, th- I think that was. That's the. I would. I would imagine, or that feels like the, the kind of mo going forward is let's take what we know about what we've learned from Google, building Google tech and opinionated amazing stuff. And like, let's use that as inspiration for incremental products in, in that, that the market's ready for, which feels like a, a, a great, you know, a good approach. Do you know in what ways Kubernetes diverged from the Borg plan? I, so, uh, no, I, I mean, I'm not very familiar with how, Borg operates, and you know I'm I'm only somewhat familiar with how Kubernetes operates, to <laughs> right. be honest. But but I do know that to make an engineer productive on shipping stuff onto Borg took like months. Like you think Kubernetes YAML is bad? Defining a job to run on Borg was like this complicated oh. sea of levers. As you can imagine, any kind of internal project tends to be. It's like we, we don't need a lot of polish on this. We don't need to constrain what users can do because they can do whatever they want. It's internal. So just like give them the world, the con- you know, the control panel, all the widgets you can imagine there. Uh, and so there were, there were like wikis upon wikis about like how to get something through build and onto Borg. So very positive innovation in terms of like shipping a more opinionated and kind of constrained artifact in Kubernetes. Uh, there's probably a bunch of like maybe low-level performance significant things that are different, and I'm not as familiar with those. The Google DNA, I think, is shaped by the fact that it has a money-printing machine in the advertising business. Amazon's core business had much lower margins, and over time, they have built what seems like their own money-printing machine in the cloud business. But do you think those first core businesses, the fact that Google had a money printing machine 
Amazon had to grind it out in the retail business. Did that affect how those companies have built their respective cloud provider businesses? Gosh, it's like you're teeing me up. No, this is like something I think a lot about, and I, I actually really like that question, and I agree with the way you phrased it. Things like Google had Google Translate for a long time. They had voice recognition for a long time. They had pretty sophisticated tools, and they always they surfaced them to their users. And I imagine they felt like that drove traffic to Google, and it fed the machine, the running printing machine. But when it came time to like, do we ship those, do we sell those directly so that someone can make products that compete with our, you know, that could attract attention, maybe even away from our money printing machine. I, th- I think that line of argument always slowed Google down or, or it limited Google's, you know, desire to pursue a market like AWS. It was like, let's shoot, you know, we can ship App Engine because that's kind of like this, you know, kind of weird wonky thing. But do we want to ship you know, uh, Google Brain or even Dataflow, I think, these were all seen as like, you know, for a while, we, we pub- Google published papers as opposed to open source projects in part because it was like, we want, we want our PhDs to, to have a voice, you know, we want to be thought leaders, but we don't want to like give people too much of an advantage competing with the money machine. That's, you know, that's my, uh, no one in Google senior leadership has ever told me that, but that's, that's my perception. But you're right that uh, AWS was always in search of a money machine. It was like, hey, we've, we've developed these cool things and we're not making any money in our real business. Maybe these can make us money. I mean, <laughs> right. like, uh, and, and you can just see like a, a whole like rush to like just ship anything, throw it against the wall and see if it sticks because one day we have to produce money. Yes. Um, so, and, you know, maybe that, that kind of lends itself to what we described earlier. Like those motivations would put you in a world of like autonomy, figure something out and a world of like consensus don't rock the boat because we got to make sure that we preserve the money machine. To that end, and this is, you didn't ask me about this, but it would be interesting to see if those things change some. You know, Google seems much more willing to pursue new projects when they feel like them threatened. And yeah, I mean, I guess actually th- th- that, that's how I would have phrased it is Google fundamentally seems to respond, seems to innovate when it feels threatened. Amazon innovates out of survival, out of like, uh, like all, you know, that's just part of what it does to, right. to progress. But, but if you don't poke the bear, I don't, you know, Google, it'd be interesting to see what Google does if, if they're not poked, because maybe there's not a lot of urgency to do something. At least things that make money. I right. mean, there's, there is some... Yeah, they're always innovating on, on, on kind of like adjacencies right. around the money machine. Like Maps always gets better yep. and, you know, this and that. Android... When you're inside Google, does it feel like the company is 10 years ahead of everything else, or does it just feel like a total alien? I think you're saying, is it weird, or is it the future? Right. You know, is it, there's some implicit, like, it's probably weird there. Is it weird because it's what the future is, or is it just kind of strange? Yeah, some strange evolutionary. And it it surprises me. Uh, I mean, this is just one part of the the Google internals, it surprised me how much of what Google does is now the things the market, like the startups are all excited about. Like the, you know, like the travel and expense reporting. Like all, there's a whole bunch of wave of companies doing the stuff that like this internal thing called trips at Google did that some engineer or a couple engineers came up with and it was ugly. Uh, but that's now how the rest of the enterprise is going to operate. You mean there's an internal tool called Trips? There's an internal tool called Trips, and you could, when you told it you wanted to travel, it would tell you your the budget for such travel. Like, if I'm going to Boston, this is about what it should cost, and we're going to give you credits to spend. And if you don't spend all, you know, if you if you fly cheaply, you get to kind of accumulate credits for you know more expensive or last minute travel opportunity. And, then, and you know, there's like a half dozen companies offering those kind of tools and doing well mm-hmm. at them today. That kind of moved travel and expense approvals from, it democratizes them. Like so much of, you know, old school enterprise was like asking your manager for, to do things. Right. And, and those expenses kind of, there's no kind of central hub to like keep those in check. It was all kind of, so that's just one example. Another would be, like OKRs, you I'm know, just the yeah, same thing. the like, OKR and the KPI software. Totally. That's like another 
thing that's everywhere. It's like a product category now. Yeah, the 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 like credit cards. Like Google gave me a credit card, and I could use it anywhere. I didn't have to ever use like Conquer or Expense Software. And now like you have Brex and Divi that are basically giving you the same thing. So and that's and, and you know and then on the infrastructure side, it was like containers were a thing. And, right. You know, event driven architecture. So it does feel like it's in the future, but it is it is kind of a it's not obvious because it's it's not um, it hasn't been honed with the like. It, you know, it's not polished. Like trips didn't feel like the future when I was experiencing right. it. You know, was there anything you remember about the culture or about the internal tooling that has not permeated the real world outside of Google yet? Is there anything you particularly miss or can sense the absence of? Well, I, so there's the the counter to that, or there there are elements of the Google culture that kind of got stuck behind, like Google Groups is still the primary mode of like communicating within Google. Like everybody subscribes to a million Google Groups. Everyone's an email. Thy inbox was a mess and everyone's is a mess. It's just complete, like the volume, the volumes of emails out of control because everyone, you know, to, to, to get to this consensus building, everyone's subscribing to everyone else's team thing and they're all sharing with each other, but it's all an email which feels just totally dated. And you can see how Google may invest Slack, for example, like that just like the, that. And even even the competitive response to Slack felt kind of slow and like, what is this noisy thing? It hasn't come to market yet, right? Yeah. Well, uh, so the uh, Hangouts chat, I think, is the, is the you know, it's in market now. Um, is it? I believe so, yeah. Here I am, like, launching, uh, naming uh, secrets. No, I, I think we could Google it and we'll edit the show if it's not. Okay. <laughs> This but is like yeah, a Microsoft yeah. Teams kind of thing. Yeah, it's a Microsoft Teams thing. It's um, it came out of the Hangouts brand. Got it. Instead of being kind of one to one and group chat, it was kind of threads and channels. So that's the counter to what you're suggesting. As far as like, are there th- are, there, are there still like ways in which Google is ahead of the game and living in the future? Probably. I mean, I th- so they had this awesome internal. I don't know. I guess that's kind of tackled too. They had this thing called Teams that was. Uh, like who reports to who and what you're working on. I, I don't feel like that's been kind of well permeated in startup land yet. Mm. Like what's the org structure? There's, mm. there's some org structure startups and there's other startups doing the kind of what am I working on and what's the, the homepage I go to and I can kind of see news within the company. Right. There, there used to be intranets and SharePoint and I feel like that's uh, in kind of like Microsoft's era and I feel like that's still unresolved. Nascent. Yeah, yeah. The internal company social network. That is not a thing. Yeah, that and, is and, not a product. Yeah, yeah, and there was this whole folly where we thought Facebook and Google Plus were going to like become our internal social networks and that never and so I think we could lost. Could still happen. It could still happen. Yeah. But I think we lost to like, you know, 5 years of Silicon Valley innovation thinking that was the way it would emerge and it hasn't quite. How has Kubernetes changed the competitive dynamics of cloud providers? So, Amazon's launch of uh, the Kubernetes service was pretty uh, was like an important point, pretty telling situation. They they launched uh, what is it ECS, the Elastic Container Service. Mm-hmm. I want to say it even predated Kubernetes. I'm not sure, but it was kind of like about the same time. about the same time. And that was their Docker Swarm. That was their solution to the problem. Nobody liked it, and, or I'm, I'm I'm being a little no, blunt. No, it had some I, users. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I it was just proprietary. Nobody yeah. knew how it worked. It, right. They were like, look, we're just going to kick kick the can down the road. We don't know which open source project is going to win, so we're just going to make a closed source thing. Kind of yeah, brilliant. Right. Which followed the like Kinesis uh, instead of shipping Kafka approach, and it followed, you know, other, that, that was kind of AWS's way well, of doing things. Well, probably for different reasons, though. I yes, mean, yeah. You know, Kinesis, they just, like, why, why do a Kafka solution when you could just totally wrap it in your own thing? Yeah. I, yeah but yeah, similar, similar yeah, philosophy. Yeah. And uh, I, I think... Amazon would have been pleased if ECS would have become the dominant way people run containerized applications on AWS. But that didn't happen. The customers said, we're going to use Kubernetes, and they, they basically begged Amazon to give them an EKS. And to Amazon's credit, they did it. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, if you, I applaud them for trying the, the proprietary, and I applaud them for then caving, not caving is maybe not the right word, for following the customer demand and being like, oh, you don't want this? We want this? All right, here it is. So you asked, how has it changed the way cloud providers operate? I guess that's just one example. The other is that I think as long as 
EC2 and images and VMs, so like the primary way of running applications, I think Amazon's got the first mover advantage in the upper hand. In a world where Helm charts or you know whatever Docker images or other things, I think it's you know it abstracts the the APIs that we've come to rely on for Amazon a little bit, and it diminishes their kind of the portability and the lock in. And I think that's super threatening to Amazon in some sense. And um, so, I th- I, but but it's not game changing. I mean, they, they still have. I don't I don't think it's any reason to leave Amazon. But it's it's step one. You know, it opens the door to leaving. And then if other people can continue to advance new things, now now there's some there's some liquidity in moving around cloud where there wasn't before. And now that you're a venture capitalist, what? are the investment opportunities in the Kubernetes ecosystem? Because by the way, I remember talking to you at the most recent KubeCon, and you're like, I'm not sure what I'm looking for here. Well, to to, to be honest, I mean, I may have said that, but what I was reflecting is that it's been a bit of a somewhat disappointing. I mean, I've talked to other VCs who've looked at the space, and outside of a couple breakout companies, it hasn't felt like the, with the way the enterprise is talking about Kubernetes, you would have expected you know, billion-dollar companies, several, to have emerged. We, of course, had Heptio, which had an awesome exit. It didn't seem like the business was taking off. And so even then, you know, even Heptio felt like uh, here was, like, a really awesome team, super valuable to VMware, makes total sense, great investment bet. But, like, was that an indication that that Kubernetes was this big startup business opportunity? And it felt like it's been less of that than I expected. Yeah. Now, it does make distributed systems easier to build and deploy and give to companies to consume. So is there some downstream impact that... Yeah, yeah. So certainly there's... I I was referring mostly to like pure play Kubernetes vendors as feeling like... And and maybe all that business kind of just went to the cloud providers. And, And maybe it's just we were a little early and there's still ones to come but there's like the surrounding the tooling that surrounds kubernetes and microservices that have kind of emerged alongside kubernetes and and maybe cloud native more broadly has been just a boon for investment i mean there's every facet of tooling i think has turned over into kind of a next gen opportunity like like there was a monitoring company and now is there a monitoring company for kind of kubernetes microservices cloud native you know there was a um, deployment approaches, and now is there deployment approaches for Kubernetes microservice security? There was security before when we were on VMs, and now there's uh, new approaches to cloud native. But so, the question is, are those approaches warranting entirely new companies, or are they just alternative products built into Datadog or built into some cloud provider adjunct? Yeah, uh, I think that there's. Uh, I, I think so. I mean, I, how can I make that a more interesting statement? Uh, the there's already some evidence to that, and we invested in Honeycomb recently, which is like an observability company. And you could you could tag observability as kind of like next gen monitoring for cloud native if you wanted. Uh, that may not be charity might not agree with me with that tagline, uh, but and you, you see a new relic who kind of, who's who's kind of the former generation doing things. To be more, to do more observability, more tracing, for example. But I still think I don't. I don't see new new relic consuming all that space. I think I think there's there's one, two, three companies that could emerge there, and I think that's true. Certainly, security running, and maybe it's not. It's not just Kubernetes. I think it's more broadly containers, uh, Kubernetes, and and microservices that are presenting, because those things have all kind of happened. Nobody's running containers, not on very few, you know, Kubernetes is how we're running containers. And so I think the container security companies are, are becoming Kubernetes security companies. But I think if you just had VM security companies of, of yonder, of, of or, <laughs> your. your, I think there's an opportunity to compete with them and, and build a big business. What's been the hardest part of transitioning from doing product development to investing? Uh, somebody warned me. I don't know if this is the hardest, but it is kind of it's it's an interesting situation that somebody warned me about. They're like, as a as a PM, you're always looking for like 
opportunity, but opportunity you can fix. It's like, oh, if we just like tweak this, if we improve. And, and, and it's easy, I think, as a VC to get to, to want to buy uh, fixer uppers as a product, as a former product person, be like, oh, there's a bunch of opportunity here. And this company could chase it if, you know, if we like do a little more of this and position it that way. Where I think the primary mode really should be like, this is, this thing is working. Like mm-hmm. this is, this is what the market needs. And, and certainly they're gonna run into issues along the way and you're gonna have to address those and work with them to fix it. And, and, and my experience I think can be helpful there. But I do run sometimes the risk. I catch myself at times being like, this isn't working, but we could make it work. Mm-hmm. And, and I need to uh, you know, realize that I'm just like a, you know, as a board member or investor, I'm a, like a part-time contributor to this thing and there's already a dozen people working on it. And you know, is my, you know, my small contribution gonna turn this thing around such that it's a valuable investment? So I think that's, that's a kind of a, a risk product managers face uh, becoming investors. The flip side is that also there's some aspect, uh, you know, there, there's a bit of learning to do around finance that, that I didn't come with. And then I felt like there were others in the industry who, you know, knew much better than me. Uh, fortunately, I think staying in infrastructure, which has been my focus mostly, has, I feel like my experience has been more valuable than my lack of experience has, has been a negative, if that makes sense. <laughs> right. Maybe one hard thing is I think sometimes it's, it's easy to look too far into the future. I think at Google, it's hard to not look, t- it, I, what am I trying? There's no risk to looking too far into the future at mm. Google. Eventually the future comes, and if the company's more, you know, has more products and tooling to absorb it, then Google's not better. running out of solvency. Yeah, but as a VC, you, you gotta time your investments. And I think it was really, I feel comfortable with like, in some cases, what the future's gonna look like. And I quickly wised up to the fact that it's not, not only important what the future's gonna look like, but when it will look like that, which is a dimension that was less important to me as a product manager. You started a podcast. Yeah, all good people do. <laughs> so I hear. It's called Contributor. It's about open source maintainers. What are the themes that have come up in your conversations so far with open source maintainers? So... One is is the people and community. We, we use the word community, as, but I don't mean it in the way I used to mean it, but I mean it now like relationships. Just how, how much motivation of this is around relationships, which uh, I thought this would be like a business podcast, largely. Like these open source things have business elements to them and they, they create a lot of value for the economy. And, and then when I talk to these maintainers, I find out that, that a lot, yeah, yeah, this is, uh, this is a way of interacting with people. And one of our portfolio companies, Chef, I talked to Adam Jacob at Chef, and we, we got to talking about, like, I don't know. I was, I, I was asking him, like, how valuable the community was and this, and he's like, no, no, these are, these are, my pe- these are people. These are my people. Like, these, I spent the last decade, these are my friends. This is, these are the people I woke up and, you know, uh, had coffee with in the morning and, and spent time with. We talked about our kids. And, and so, you know, to him, this wasn't like a, an asset of or a collection. You know, it's not partnerships. It's not uh, BD. And, and so that was, that was really awesome to hear. So when, when I, you know, we, we talked about what's his future like, will he do more open source? He's like, oh, yeah. I mean, these, uh, and, and like the chef project will live on in part because we are friends, and that's not going anywhere. You know, even if like the company goes this way or the, the, the specifics of the project go this way or that way, licensing changes, what the world doesn't see is that there's this close-knit group of people who all care about each other. And he's like, that's personally super rewarding. And a lot of people aren't aware of it. So that's been a surprising element that came out of the podcast. In the episode you did with Matt Klein on Envoy, his description of interacting with the community actually sounded very much like the process of starting a company. I mean, his process of building the community and doing documentation and communicating with people, doing pull requests, making minor bug fixes, that was an incredible grind for him. And he, you know, in that show, he described it as sounded like the most difficult work period of his life. The ironic thing, of course, being that he's not building a company 
around Envoy. Yeah. You have any reflections on that one? Because that one's particularly interesting. Envoy has been so successful, but it is not a product. It's not an open source project that's going to be productized. It's not going to be turned into a company. Yeah. I, I, I didn't describe it or I didn't internalize it the way you did, but I agree with you that it did have... Like, I remember we had a conversation around when Google showed up to the Envoy project. They were super excited about it. And he's like, we, I had 10 Google engineers in the room with me and I felt like I was being acquired. And I was like, wow, again, this like kind of business parallel of like, he, he's this call him scrappy. I don't know if that's the right word, but he's this uh, kind of solo, if not small group of people who's built this thing. And then suddenly Google wants to show up and, and influence and own it or do something with it. And he's feeling worried that they're going to take his baby. Totally felt like kind of entrepreneur situation. And yet it wasn't, you know, it was this other kind of parallel universe of, of open source, which is yeah, in, intriguing. I applaud Matt for for kind of taking a position on, you know, I think I think it would be, if I were in his position, I think I would have struggled much more with the company starting decision. I can imagine myself kind of starting one, but then kind of wanting to still do the open source. And then uh, he didn't seem to waffle, or, or at least his waffling concluded with some definite choice at some point that he's, he's held to since yeah. then. Although it hasn't stopped other people from productizing Envoy, yeah. at least in the case of building service meshes right. around it. Give me your survey of the companies that are productizing Istio. Well, so, or, or Envoy. Oh, I guess. Yeah, I mean, are, yeah. there, are there companies that are productizing Envoy that are not productizing it through Istio? Well, uh, so... Istio uh, being the service mesh built around Envoy. Yeah, yeah. There was a company that was uh, closely affiliated with Envoy it's no longer. And, and, and in fact, Matt and I spoke about it, and he was a big fan of it. And I forget its relationship with Service Mesh, but I don't, th I don't, I don't think it was a Service Mesh solution, and the name is escaping me at the moment. But, and it doesn't matter in some degree in the fact that it's no longer a thing. But, you know, Matt was like kind of like an advisor of the company, and so to our discussion earlier, he, he was do, doing some commercial things, although it wasn't his company, and he was clear about that. And, and maybe just comment on that, Matt seems great about just sticking to his like welcoming all the people and all like if somebody launched another service mesh company on on envoy he would be ecstatic because because that's a win for envoy kind of thing where you know if he was a company founder he wouldn't feel that way probably so there's solo edit levine's company that is i think you know I don't, I don't know how closely it's certainly closely tied to envoy i don't know how closely tied it is to istio they're doing things around increased interoperability, I think, with other service mesh-like implementations. And I think they've explored whether they should also support other proxies. But certainly from the beginning, it was Envoy and mostly Istio. There's Istio. What, Varun at Istio, founder, started the, is it Tetrate? Tetrate, yeah. Yeah. There's companies doing security, kind of the service mesh layer. Mm. Isovalent uh, is one that comes to mind. There's and and uh, Calico kind of I think has some. They also do security. I want to say some of it's at the service mesh layer. And then Google itself. And then Google itself, totally. And then closely you know, related, but not Envoy or Istio would be other service meshes. Uh, Aspen Mesh, actually, they may they may be doing some things with Istio. And then there's uh, the Linkerd or Linkerd project and and Buoyant, which you know in some cases predates all this and they're doing great things as well. Is this stuff validated? Is the service mesh idea validated by the market? So uh, to a degree, uh, the, the kind of Silicon Valley companies who like, you know, Lyft is all about, uh, you know, Envoy and service mesh. Like it, if, if you're building on Kubernetes, it feels like a valuable thing. And I think, but, but what's interesting to me is I feel like the enterprise is bought into Kubernetes they're not quite using it in production, but they think they need, they think, not only they think they need to, but they want to. And they're like actively marching towards that. Like we want it, we need containers. And if we're going to run containers, we need Kubernetes. But I, I don't get the sense that, that service mesh is at certainly the same level of adoption. It's not like we need Kubernetes and a service mesh in the next year. It's like we need Kubernetes in the next year and we're looking at service mesh. So I don't think it's hit broad validation yet, but it, it feels promising in that, it, you know, it's following in the footsteps that Kubernetes did. There was a time when Kubernetes didn't have broad validation. 
you did do a show about Istio, right? Hasn't, yes, hasn't yes, aired yeah, yet? yeah. Who with who? Was it Lewis? No, he's Swedish. Sven, Google engineer. Got it. And the reflections on Istio inside of Google. Um, well, he was he was part of the founding team, and, and mostly my episodes are mostly about the story of how you went from thinking you want to do this to today. Like, what's the, what's the kind of life cycle of the mm. open source project? So with him, it was about how do you kind of get Google to give you a team to do this? How do you convince people that this is important? And then him discovering Envoy as like a foundational element showing up with Matt Klein and kind of integrating that in some discussion around how Istio, I think it's well acknowledged, kind of overpromised. I think I like launched a website. That oh, you said, talked to him about that. Yeah, we can do all these things, and or we we want to, or we plan to, and it wasn't in version one or two or three or you know it was like right. Um, and I think the it was like an ICO white paper. That's right. <laughs> yes, yes, crypto mesh, and I think he was he he acknowledged if I remember correctly, thinking you know maybe we did a little too much there, but also he felt like that framed the mission for both the internal team and the external team. It was like. Here's what we are and what we're about, which I think is an intriguing way of, you know, if, 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 if the code base is going to be open, why not, you know, kind of the large thinking? Well, Amazon has that press release thing. Like yeah. If you're going to create a project within Amazon, you start with a press release, right. which is like you write what the press release would look like before the product is really out there. Yeah. Google took that practice perhaps a little too seriously. In there, in this case, development of Istio. Yeah, yeah, and it, it may just be uh, no. You know, I don't mean to fault them, but but I'm sure like a little tone swapping from like here's what we want to be yeah. versus like here's what we expect you know, it to I be th- in the near term. I thought it was like a problem of like the game of telephone. Like you know, probably somebody on the Google engineering team was like, "This is what we wanted to do," yeah. and then somebody on the marketing team said, "This is." how we're going to market it. Yeah. And then people, you know, the further it got downstream in the game of telephone, it reached more and more marketing people who said we should emphasize these points more and more and more. And then eventually it got to perhaps the IBM marketing team because they were doing this launch with IBM. And then it, in each hop on the game of telephone, it just amplified these things that Istio just didn't accomplish yet. And then the people who were actually implementing it in the community or trying it out in the community saw, I can't even bring this thing up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and so it created a huge disjunction, which uh, was an interesting story. And I probably came down a little too hard on it. Uh, I was pretty critical. Um, oh, in like one of your episodes? A couple of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, a whole series. You did a show about ClickHouse. Yeah. It hasn't aired yet. So coming back to our discussion of data warehousing, this is a column store database. Yeah. ClickHouse is an OLAP database. There's a number of different column store data warehouses. What's different about ClickHouse? So there's a variant of the column store that was all about scale. Scale at the, at the sacrifice of a little bit of speed. Like, you know, BigQuery originally, uh, the Dremel paper was kind of maybe the, one of the first descriptions of a column store, Dremel being Google's internal name for what is now BigQuery externally. And, you know, if you run a uh, BigQuery query, it's going to take at least a few seconds because the, it's not it's not intended to be like a real time, eh, like I need to know the answer now. It's like, I want I want to get an answer out of a lot of logs. I like to do it while I'm sitting here. I don't want to like leave my desk and go get a cup of coffee. So, um, and, and, and to be able to interact with it. And that was what BigQuery or Dremel did so well. was like, you know, I can compute against, you know, maybe an infinite amount of logs and get a reasonable answer in under a minute. And in some cases on the order of seconds. ClickHouse and maybe Druid and some of the like time series DBs, I think are pushing that to like milliseconds which is like, and I'm not sure the limits on scale relative to the, to the other types of column stores, but getting you, you know, answers, sub-second answers is kind of a new frontier in columnar databases. The ClickHouse does really well on that front. 
it's also interesting just that it, the origin story is so non-Silicon Valley. What is it? Oh, it's uh, Yandex. So the Russian search engine, they had, you know, there's a lot of parallels between Google and Yandex. And they have a Google Analytics-like service, I think called Yandex Metrica. And that team needed to build something. They saw the Dremel paper, but they didn't have the code base. So they kind of built their own columnar store, but they were pushing it these kind of millisecond times. So this thing's been hardened and incubated inside of Yandex for, it's like a decade old in some ways. And they eventually open sourced it. And so the open source is, has only been available for uh, a couple years. But it's, it's different in that it's not like we open sourced it from day one and it had some rough edges, but mm. we've improved it as a community. It's like, here's an awesome database that's actually operationally maybe even better than Druid, even though it's similarly fast. Um, operationally meaning like you just kind of click deploy and start querying. So that, that's kind of, and like I said, it's all it's still, I think the code base is still owned by, the, by Yandex. I expect that they'll do some kind of foundation and, and in our podcast, um, the creators alluded to that, you know, we'll find some way to kind of make it more community governed, but. Are they doing a company around it? Uh, there's, the, they are not, no, no. There are, there are companies emerging around it, but it, I didn't get, yeah, the founders don't seem like they are. Do you have a sense of the size of the data warehouse market? Is it big enough to support all these different companies? I mean, you have Snowflake may be the biggest infrastructure enterprise exit we've seen in a while. Like, uh, the, the growth at Snowflake is just astounding. Um, can you quantify it for me? Uh, do, do you know off the top of your head? Uh, I, rumors are that it's like, you know, I want to say like 100 million and, and doubling, you know, more than doubling um, at that size, which is in revenue, which is like really unusual. Uh, if you look at other, you know, AWS is like one of the few examples of companies that double north right. of 100 million or right, more than right. double at north, north of 100 million. Uh, right. You know, maybe Uber's in that camp or something. So... Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, and, and who knows how these things will go. I don't mean to predict that the growth may slow, what's going to happen in IPO and multiples, what have you. But data warehouse, at least a Snowflake, and Snowflake feels like in some ways it's not the whole market, right? There's still plenty of redshift going on, there's a bunch of BigQuery, there's a bunch of, they're just one aspect of the market. So it feels like, I mentioned earlier that some of the money that was going into Hadoop, some big data has kind of moved, making data warehouse surprisingly big market. Yeah. Well, it also seems like Hadoop, as successful as the Hadoop vendors were, in some ways they might have been too early. Like, because there's, I don't know what the words of choice were to describe digital transformation 10 years ago. Yeah. But now we have digital transformation. <laughs> That's right. Which, you know, depending on, on whether you see it as something new, if it's something new or if it's just more proliferate than whatever digital transformation was 10 years ago, that's a significant increase in the market of people willing to buy a data warehouse product. And obviously everywhere, the volumes of data that people have are just bigger. So you would expect the data warehousing businesses to do better than ever. So you need fewer fewer and fewer customers, presumably. Although yeah. the cost of storage has gone down, yeah. so maybe that countervails it a bit. Uh, agreed. I think digital transformation and machine learning, I would, I would throw machine learning. That where before, I think it was like, before digital transformation and before machine learning, big data, the problem with big data was like, if you, there's insights in there. Like if you just put all the data in one place <laughs> and you start querying it, there, there's going to be things that will emerge. They're going to bring your costs down. They're going to save you money. Efficient. It was all kind of vague and aspirational and unclear. And, and, I think the move to digital transformation feels like it's driven by like efficiencies, cost improvements, agility, and 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 it's kind of top down. And then and machine learning just feels like this imperative threat that everyone's like, we got to figure this out. And and so suddenly like we're going back to doing what people said we would do before, but with some real urgency rather than just aspiration. Does podcasting help you become a better investor? I feel like asking Adam Jacob if like his community is valuable. And he's like, no, it's just my people, my friends. I do it because I love it. I don't know if it does. That's not the end or, or at least the kind of goal, but I enjoy it. I, what I love about investing in part is 
meeting all these people who are doing amazing things and understanding how they're doing it and why. And uh, podcasting is just another way to kind of scratch that itch, I think. Maybe it helps. I think there's some real market opportunities in infrastructure and in open source. And so I think by shining a light on those, maybe I have more find can find more opportunities there because mm. uh, people know that I care about those things and, and see them as opportunities. The Speaking of the stories, you did a show with HY about Aluxio. Aluxio is the system of distributed memory and storage APIs. He told the story of bringing it to market from a university project. What are the lessons that you took away from the Aluxio story? And more broadly, the trajectory of taking an open source project from academia to market. So as you probably know, Luxio and HY incubated in the same like group, I don't know what to call it, academic kind of unit as a Spark and other big name data projects. Mesos. Mesos, right. So it was a like that was in some ways a well-trod path, or at least it appeared so at the time. There was a couple people ahead of HY. And in some ways, it doesn't feel that, it feels kind of analogous to people who start Kafka inside LinkedIn or Kubernetes inside Google, where you have this you know, organization, institution, who wants you to succeed in the open source for whatever reasons they want you to succeed. You know, it probably brings some, some brand equity to both the university and or this big tech company. And then you get to kind of, if, you, if it goes well, you get to leave and start a company around it, and which is pretty awesome, I guess. That like you get to take the code base with you because it's an open. You get to like build this project inside a company or university. I get a PhD and I get a startup. Uh, you know, I don't think those were necessarily those people's motivations, but it is an interesting and and effective path. It seems to get a startup built. In talking with HY, it seemed like he kind of knew from, like he was like my thesis project, you know, my project was kind of this, this problem. And he got uh, two years to do it, which is a luxury that, you know, not many have um, with, with like super smart people around him to advise him on it. Uh, One of the reasons I like to have investors on the show, there is a, a feedback loop between the investment community and the software development community. There's a sense in which the software developers inform the investors as to what they're building. The investors have some sense of the overall market so that the investors can give feedback to the software developers in terms of this thing already exists or uh, you might be able to productize this thing in this direction. The investors are repositories of knowledge, and they become this kind of broad overseer type over the over the industry. And as an investor, you have the difficulty of needing to survey a broad landscape and determine which areas in the landscape to go deep on. Because you can't be just a surveyor and be entirely broad. You have to eventually choose some areas to go a little bit deeper on. Are there any particular areas that we haven't talked about yet that you are going deep on right now? I'll just flag that we've talked about data engineering in part, mostly because it's my background, but I also think that this is like, if you want digital transformation, you want machine learning to work in your company, you're gonna have to solve the data problem. And the data problem is surprisingly unsolved. Like despite all the tools we've talked about, people feel like they like business users can't get the answers they want fast enough. Like, are, am I, do I have a churn problem? I don't know. How, how do I find that out? I <laughs> find an analyst who can SQL query and they're gonna go find a data engineer who can populate tables and six months later, it's still unclear. So I'm bullish on the broad data engineering landscape in order to address the stuff we discussed. 
kind of off the wall, maybe one is that I think we built a bunch of tooling around building software, call it DevOps or continuous CI, CD, and and it's changed the way we build software. And I think the way we are going to build hardware will also change. The way we build hardware is largely the same as it has been for the last 20 years. You have like a designer who draws something and then you have like, you know, outsourced CAD users that fit it into these tools. And then that goes into like a simulation software. It goes through SIM and as it breaks, it goes back to the designer and the engineer, neither of which may be CAD users. And so there's also a CAD user in the room. And there's all these like functions, the CAD drawers, the engineers, the designers, the simulators, in the same way that we had QA and ops and dev and um, SRE and and part of what happened in DevOps is like a consolidation of functions because we introduced automation to handle parts of the work. And then it was more easy for one person to kind of get the rest of it all done and have more ownership, which allows us to have kind of very fast timelines if, if it's all in one person's mind. So I, I, I'm excited about engineering software, which is what we call it in hardware land. Uh, which is a little confusing because it could also be software engineering so- hardware, uh, software, but I guess I mean mechanical engineering software as an opportunity. And there's some other corollary trends feeding into that, like 3D printing and additive manufacturing. In, in a sense, that's like the cloud. Like I think we always wanted to do continuous integration with software, but there was no impetus to change. Like we were still shipping software in a package, shrink wrapped for some time. And so, that, so why so why build daily or hourly? if you can only deploy you know, once, and you, or you have these kind of atomic, kind of intrusive updates. But with the cloud, that was kind of the tipping point that said, okay, now we, we really should change, because we can. And 3D printing additive manufacturing, I think, does that, where like, maybe having a six month build cycle on a design is too long if we can print it in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can print it in a day, maybe we should have a build cycle in a day. So that's an area I'm excited about. This little, maybe off the wall, or at least, uh, you know, and I think there's also, and this is maybe somewhat well understood, but I think there's also a, an interesting opportunity around a pattern of there used to be services businesses and, and investors didn't like those. They're kind of like, uh, you know, lots of labor, low margins, and, and we wanted software businesses, highly scalable, high margin. But there's, there's some path to get to like, automating all these things through machine learning. And part of that path is that we need people to do the job first. And then we need to instrument those people to understand what they're doing. And then we need to use machine learning and software to automate what they were doing from what we've learned from the instrumentation. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's, there's a path for companies to, to like, we're gonna hire a bunch of people to do this task for the next two years. And then we're gonna automate it over time. And, and then we're gonna you know, go public or exit at high margin software, which is a kind of a compelling model. And it feels like, you know, if we're, to, if we're to cross the barrier towards these automated things through machine learning, it seems like a viable path. Is this the thing that people call robotic process automation? Uh, it's not. Uh, robotic process automation, I think, is like, we're going to sell you software so that your company can, so it's related, your company can automate their tasks that you're doing already. You're, you're creating invoices, you're underwriting loans which is kind of a bunch of repeated manual steps. And we're going to stick a, a shim of software between you and the keyboard, and we're just going to watch your keyboard strokes, and then we're going to replicate them. Right. You know, it's like Excel macros across the desktop. And so that's robotic process automation, poorly named or otherwise. And what I'm referring to here is like, if we wanted to automate QA today, software QA, we need someone to write, or, or you know, t- test writing. You know, no one likes writing their software tests, and maybe they're predictable as to what you need to write. One way to get there is, is to hire a dozen test writers, or let's take accounting, uh, someone to keep your books. I can imagine there being eventually an automated accounting company, and until we're there God, for so. the next 10 years, maybe that we can give you like an outsourced accounting startup right. that can evolve into right, right, right. Yeah, an automated accounting startup. And then maybe I'll just tag on to that. I think that there's probably a bunch of software that needs to, if you, if you do one of the startups, you have to build two products. One is the like service you give your customers. And then two would be the instrumentation product that your laborers are using. 
that 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 observe your laborers and what they're doing. And I think so. I think there's an opportunity to to build software that instruments knowledge workers. Eric Anderson, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here again. <laughs>